And as Jürgen's theme, written by yours truly by taking a small cat, the grand piano, adding them both together and pressing record, dies away, I'd like to welcome you to the very first episode of what I'm calling Broken Oars University. As you can tell by the Geordie accent, I am the northern one of Broken Oars podcast, and Broken Oars University is me wanting to branch out into some other areas of interest that interest me and therefore might interest you. It was an idea I had back in the summer when a lot of people on our Twitter feed were going back to university or were going to university for the first time and I thought of university as well as being the the educational experience that it is is also something of an expansive experience in terms of the way that we can view the world and the way that we can view ourselves and I wanted to take a step away from the usual diet of Broken Oars podcast which is amazing guests world-class light badinage and quippage between myself and Dr. Hines and just talk about some stuff that interests me because it interests me and the weird thing is that me talking about it helps me to work out what I mean in the sense that if you want to learn something the best way to do it is to teach somebody else how to do it. Now I am branching out as you can see from the title on your device this is called the infinite story and that's going to be like well what the hell has that got to do with rowing well you may be surprised you may not be um i am aware that people tend to listen to us because we talk about rowing and there might be some confusion because i'm now going to talk about something else and that's fair enough i like talking about rowing i the guests we we've met on broken Oz podcast the guests who've turned into friends, the stories we've heard, the things we've shared have been amazing, genuinely amazing. Um, But you've probably noticed by now that I'm not one of those rowers who's that interested in talking about splits and training programs. And no, before you ring in, email in, message in, it isn't because mine are crap. This podcast and meeting the people on it have helped me realise that actually I was pretty good and still am, considering I have literally less than 15% of my kidney function left and in the last nine months I've nearly died twice from having COVID. Um, I was decent, but more than that I was damned lucky because I was lucky to be surrounded by the rowing and coaches that I was and that I still am. People like Dennis, Kev, Ben, Chapman, Hancock, everyone else at Agecroft are just as important as Paul, John T. James, Stephen, Damien, Trev, Jill, Duncan and everyone at Tyne. And that's kind of the thing. We are all islands individual and unto ourselves, but when we come together collectively with other people is when magic can actually happen because that's when knowledge and skills and information can be transferred and things can be achieved and done together the thing is that I tend to see and I realise that Lewin is probably racing to the telephone now to ring me up and tell me that I'm fired again I see talking about training as being like dancing about painting this genuinely isn't rocket science if you're a rower you've probably got access to a coach or information that means you have access to a coach or access to information And in the Instagram, social media, everyone has a perfect beach body and nobody uses PED's age. Everyone wants a shortcut. This program will do this for you if you pay this much money and blah, 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 blah. 
and the reality is that you basically all you have to do is follow a simple training program for a significant period of time and you will see results you will see progress it really is that simple and the Tony Lockmans of this world have made it even simpler these are people who are really really good at getting the best out of people which all of the best coaches are and all of the best rowers do with their crewmates not that I'm suggesting that I am anywhere near that level and I know that I pretend to be the moron to Lewin's genius that's largely because Lewin is actually a genius who knows a lot of stuff I don't know whether he will jump on board the idea of Broken Oars University and start talking about some of the things that he is a specialist in it might be quite nice but the point is in launching this is to raise the idea that we are all more than just one thing we are never just the one thing that we tend to be defined as we're all multifaceted clouds of contradictions and capacities. We all know teachers who mountain bike or mountain climb or surgeons who are also linguists or painters and decorators who are accomplished dressage horse riders or plumbers who restore vintage BMX bikes. We should really reject and ignore the moronicism that social media has imposed on us with its binary choices of like, not like, the algorithm of you like pictures of cats and rowers, so here are more pictures of cats and rowers, that says that we can only be one thing, the thing that we show to the world. We are a teacher, we are a plumber, we are a doctor, we are a lawyer, we are a street sweeper, we are a, a northern podcast host. We, we can be more than a teacher or a writer or a policeman or a surgeon or a plumber. We should embrace the potential that we have in being human. Now, this isn't me embarking on an argument for liberal humanism as a positive force in the world, although it is, and I'm going to probably get castigated for that because I understand that rowing in Britain is a predominantly middle-class sport and some of the attitudes of that class which I belong to are not attitudes that I necessarily share or that you necessarily share with me so we could lose all of our listeners just by me wanting to actually talk about the idea of narrative and the infinite story um I want to use the Broken Horse platform to talk about some of the ideas that I'm working through because I'm currently working with editors on some projects that I'm actually doing on books. I have music to record. Uh, um, I have things that will involve process to get to an end point. And I'm interested in that process and how we get to the destination via the journey. And actually... You might think, well, I'm turning off now because he hasn't once mentioned how we're supposed to take the catch. I think there are huge overlaps between the practice of rowing and any other creative practice. And by creative practice, I don't mean the woolly. I'm creative bollocks that people spout. If anyone ever approaches you at a party and says, hey, hey, you're a painter. Oh, oh, wow, you're a musician. Oh, you, you write. Hey, I'm creative too. I've got a lot of ideas. Just, just run away. Don't don't stop to finish the drink. Just get out of that party because you're talking to a knob. Sorry. Um, these are people to avoid because the reality is that everything in life is creative. Being a teacher is creative. Being a surgeon is creative. Being a scientist or a mathematician or a plumber is creative, especially if you're installing an entire new central heating system and it's a very old house. Creativity is part of the human condition. It is not... Um, 
restricted to people who look like hipsters uh, and who have Instagram accounts and who occasionally release music or write stories or, or, or work in the TV and film industry. Um, because I'm interested in how we get to the destination, what I'm going to talk about today is narrative. And while I pretend to be a moron on Broken Horse Podcast, I am actually qualified to talk about this. I could list my degrees and publications and my teaching and assessment experience and blah, 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 blah. And if this was a formal academic lecture or presentation or keynote speech, then the person introducing would do that for me while mispronouncing my name. Dr. Aaron Jackson, Dr. Estrogen Jimson, Dr. Aragon Tarragon, whatever. I've heard them all. But I'm not that self-aggrandizing because the reality is that the fundamental, fundamental definition of an expert is someone who knows enough to also know what he or she doesn't know. And unfortunately, we live in a world now where people are desperately asserting themselves for fear of, indivis- fear of invisibility. You see it all over social media. Well, I'm an expert in and you're wrong because I'm right. And well, I know. Well, actually, you're, you're right and I'm wrong, but I'm not going to say it because I'll vanish. And it's such an affront to my ego to be scolded in public on social media or to be shown to be wrong in public on social media. And it's nonsense. I recently had a Twitter conversation with a gentleman called Roger Minor about Hilary Mantel. And I, I'm toying with the idea of calling these the Roger Minor lectures because that gentleman responded to every point that I made in a manner that suggested he hadn't actually read anything that I'd said at all, all the while making points about what he thought I'd said to the, the degree that I thought he was actually deliberately taking the piss as a piece of performance art. Um... So, for example, he said, you know, Mantel makes Cromwell seem alive. And I went, yes, he was a real person. There is a vast amount of documentary evidence about his life and his daily practices. There is still legislative evidence about his, his actions um, within the nation state of Britain at the time. There is a wealth of historical and archive documents. But Mantel's version is a fictionalized character in the same way that Robert Graves' Claudius bears no relation to the actual Claudius who lived um, back in the Augustan age of Rome. It's a fictional creation, and in that sense, it's alive, but it's no more alive than Claudius, it's no more alive than Frodo. And he came back with, well, yes, but no one reads Tolkien for characterization. And I felt compelled, not because I particularly like Tolkien in any way, shape or form, that Tolkien's characterizations are actually perfectly aligned to the romance novel and the high saga archetypes that were his literary models when he was writing his own work. If you want someone to talk about the unbearable lightness of being or the psychological complexity of being an upper middle class lady in the 1920s in London, read Virginia Woolf. But then again, Virginia Woolf is not very good on orcs, elves, and short asses with magical rings. So, you know, it's like, don't look at a seal and complain it's not an otter. I read my responses again, and I thought, what the hell are you actually, you know, these seem pretty clear to me. What the hell are you actually responding to here? So I eventually just put him down as one of those people who will always take the wrong end of the stick, even when the right end is clearly marked. And that's why I'm not calling these the Roger Minor lectures because it would give him far too much status 
and before anyone says, hold on, you're a rower, you can't possibly talk about, about narrative form and function and, and literary context and, and all of that stuff, because, like, you row on bowside and you've only got a 632k score and you're only allowed to be a rower. I'm not making any pretensions towards being a polymath here. I mean, what is a polymath when you get down to it? Someone who's good at more than one thing? What, like Daley Thompson? Daley Thompson was amazing at about 10 things. He was even better at being Daley Thompson. And as for wearing a moustache, no one did it better. He's responsible for pretty much all of the moustaches in the 1980s that looked like they should have belonged to Lord Kitchener during the First World War. The thing is that the idea of being a polymath, oh, he's good at lots of things. He's a, he's a surgeon who's also a classical pianist and all of that stuff. We live in an age that promotes specialization, even though we all understand the reality that specialization comes along with a lot of related diverse understandings in, in other fields. Some people think that Stephen Fry is a polymath largely because he can talk persuasively about a lot of different things and he's used his platform and celebrity to do that. He's also, fair play to him, explored things that are not usually associated with celebrity, things like mental health and being bipolar, which is to his credit. And to be fair to Stephen, if you actually listen to him or read any of his books, he's the first to say how little he actually knows and to downplay his knowledge. But it doesn't necessarily stop him talking about things. And while I'm the first to remember that a bit of Fry and Laurie was actually very funny, I'm much more of a Hugh Laurie man, and it's not just because he rode, it's because he rode, he's also a fantastic character actor, he's a wonderful musician, he, his only book to date was actually genuinely very funny. Oh, and he rode, did, did I mention that? That's really important, you can usually tell people who are good eggs because they row, it's really that simple. Um, but to come back to Stephen Fry and the idea of, 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 of polymaths in the age of specialization, Stephen is wonderful in many ways, and, and I love to hear him talk about things. But to hear him talk about some of those things, if they're areas that you have knowledge in, um, for example, his, he's, he's done some recent podcasts on Bach and opera, and you are hearing a very intelligent man repeating shibboleths about music as if they're true. Bach's music is mathematical pull the other one it's literally got bells on and will ring all musical is mathematical yes because music is fundamentally frequencies especially in the age of the tempered scale which we currently live in in the west and Bach appears mathematical because playing him on a harpsichord makes it appear machine-like because harpsichords do not respond to how hard you hit the keys if you press the key the hammer does its thing it's not like a piano where you can vary the attack and the weight of the attack Bach is not mathematical. The reality is that he's deeply musical in a way that reflected the concerns of his age. Now, the authenticity music, the authenticity movement in music, which now extends to playing period-correct mid-20th century blues licks on period-correct mid-20th century Fender Stratocasters and Les Paul through period-collect amplifiers in the third decade of the 21st century, means that Bach has been presented in a certain way from the 18th century onwards and there is a cultural accretion of ideas about Bach which accompany his music but the, the cultural accretion of those ideas aren't necessarily reflected in the music so let's let's take Bach for example it's formal because he's writing formal forms there's an element of restraint in it because he's writing on a harpsichord so the usual directions about fortissimo or, or whatever don't necessarily apply. 
if you actually look at some of his work, some of his fugues, some of his themes, the key thing is that the main element of the theme is brought out with the other voices being held to subsidiary level. That's the current way of playing Bach. Formal, restrained, the main theme and every other voice being on a subsidiary level to it, as if the theme was the plum and everything else was the background cake. But the reality is that actually if you read Bach's music, the interest lies not in the main theme, but how the subsidiary themes combine with it and the motifs of the other voices. It's not about stiff, rigid formality. It's about engaging with and balancing the sonorities of any given piece which is why the nonsense about never using the pedal in Bach is nonsense. Pianists in the past, like violinists in the past, were the lead guitarists of the day. And if you know anything about lead guitarists, you'll know that if they have a pedal anywhere near them, they're going to stand on it. I'm a guitarist. That's what I do. But beyond that, what works also in terms of fingering on a harpsichord doesn't necessarily work in terms of fingering on a piano. And there's nowhere that says that to present Bach authentically, you have to present it on a, on a harpsichord. There is a wide canon of pianistic interpretations of, of Bach. Engaging with the music is all. Otherwise, what you end up are, are deeply eccentric personal in, interpretations. Hello, Glenn Gould or interpretations that sound like a computer played them because there's no variation in the weight of the notes. So engagement with the music is all, my dear Stephen, and while it might move you deeply, spouting long-held truths about it because they're long-held doesn't necessarily make them any more true. Now, I could go on about Bach and music generally, and if anyone would like me to, then please drop me a line on the Twitter feed and I'll work it into the one of the future upcoming episodes of Broken Oars University. Um, and I think it might be an interesting one to do because playing an instrument well requires exactly the same focus, learning curve and practice as does moving a boat. And this is something I've thought about a lot while I've been in a boat and also while I've been practicing my scales. It really is. And I know people will go, no, rowing is, is full of rugger bugger heartiness and pink cheeks and it has nothing to do with being able to harmonize in tense. Actually, it's all mechanics, and before you get to the state of grace, you have to spend a lot of time working on the mechanics in both pursuits. So I'm talking about narrative today and the idea of the infinite story, because we live in the age of infinite story now. And I'm qualified to talk about lit and humanities and social sciences um, formally, and I recognize that knowing that everyone is qualified to talk about whatever they want, whenever they want, um, is the prefiguring characteristic of the modern age. But I guess that having formal qualifications in it means that I will formally qualify what I know rather than pretend that I speak definitively. So when I say I'm qualified, it's not to boast. It's to prefigure how little I actually know. Expertise nowadays tends to be an ego-led contact sport, which is why some academics and experts in various fields take it as a personal assault on their character if you question their work. A lot of people are driven to become experts uh, because of insecurity or fundamental lack of self-worth or self-esteem um, manifesting from childhood onwards by needing the external validation and the external validation that having big qualifications um, might bring them. It appears like it might help at the time and unfortunately, as I learned, when you get the big qualifications and you get the, the good grades and the good degrees and stuff like that, it doesn't necessarily resolve the inner, the inner issues. Um, but the reality is if you spent a lifetime becoming an expert in particle physics or a manual Kant and someone challenges your work, 
and you're not secure in yourself, it can be construed as an attack upon your entire life and worth. No one likes to think they've spent 30 years of their lives barking up the wrong tree, and so they bite back with, I'm the expert bollocks. But the very best people in their field, from academia to rowing to professional life to everything I've ever been involved in, the best people in the field that I've met have that balance sorted out because they know that everything they've worked towards could be undone in one research paper that shows the opposite or because they actually know that what they do and who they are are separate things. They may be intertwined things but what you do is not necessarily a reflection of your intrinsic character or your sense of self and vice versa. Learning then becomes a game, it becomes something that's fun, it's become something that is not ego-led or identity-defining. I may have a PhD in publications, but any pretensions that I have towards intelligence, or that I might have had, were quite literally beaten out of me in a previous life. So why am I about to talk about narrative if that's the case? Well, I'm talking about it because I'm working on things that require an understanding of narrative, and talking about it will help me work through it in my head. The adage that if you want to learn something, teach it, is true. If you want to learn how to move a boat, go and coach novices. If you want to learn how to write a book, go and teach a book. Go and teach Mrs. Dalloway to a class of A-level students or whatever. So, I'm talking about aspects of narrative because I'm currently working through things that require knowing how narrative works. And also, you might be going, where the flip is the rowing? When is he going to talk about, about, about seals and how you make a seal and otter by using spaniel fur and pritt stick? Where's the cheerful, chirpy, northern monkey that we know and love and only tolerate because Lewin's quite nice? Well, there's loads of rowing stuff. We've, you know, we're way past 50 episodes and we think we produce the best rowing content in the world, largely because we do. So there's loads of stuff to listen to about rowing and there's loads of stuff coming up about rowing, but you might find some of this stuff interesting. It might help the drive to the boathouse or the long erg or the, the autumnal walk with the dogs or something. It just might be something interesting to listen to while doing the tea or, or doing the ironing now that it appears that Radio 4 doesn't actually do serious commentaries about anything anymore but just has celebrity-led twaddle in place. So, narrative in the age of the infinite story. Why have I come up with this idea? Because we live in the age of the infinite story. We are now confronted by never-ending stories. Our TV shows, our film franchises, our books, our whatever. We've literally just had the latest squeezing dry of the Tolkien pips and the Rings of Power. And we've got the House of the Dragon milking the Game of Thrones universe. And by God, we're going to get into the use of that word and how it's been bastardised and whored out very quickly. We've got the never-ending, endless, never-ending, endless, never-ending story of the, the Marvel Comics universe and the DC universe and all of the superverses and the milking of the superhero cash cows. So here's the first point, if you're taking notes. Stories have a beginning, a middle and an end. Doesn't matter what order they come in. You might start at the end, go to the beginning and then work through the middle you might you might start with the middle and then go back to the start and then resolve it it doesn't matter stories have a beginning middle and an end frederick jameson who i'm sure you know um used to row for agecroft abysmal 2k score never made it into our boat wrote a very famous work called the sense of an ending and his theory was and it wasn't a theory it was a reality that any story that we read as soon as we pick it up 
as soon as we engage with it as a as a reader as a as a listener as an active audience with it presupposes the idea that it has an ending and the reality is that any book that we read any film that we watch has already happened we are being told the story in the past tense no matter what literary tricks or filmic tricks are used to make you believe that you are watching something unfolding in real time it has all already happened how do we know that because we are being told the story it is being narrated to us when we pick up the lord of the rings we already know that Frodo has made it to Mount Doom and Sam has married Rosie. How do we know that? Because we are reading the history of the War of the Ring. It has all already happened. Same with any book. Same with any book. Same with any film. The sense of an ending. When we start something, it has a sense of an ending. And that is something that we identify with culturally and also emotionally and intellectually that we are about to engage with a specific piece or a specific, a specific work that will have a specific duration and a specific arc. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. They might all be in different orders, but it has a beginning, a middle and an end. And that is it. It is a, it is a discrete unit. But now we don't have that. We are in a content churn, sausage factory, bang it out, no resolution, never ending, infinite story world now. And that's currently what we're living through. So let's talk about that a bit. Okay, so I'm not going to start with some of the franchises that I've just mentioned, although we will get to them eventually. Let's start with a left field one. Let's start with a one that might resonate with um, people out there who have small children or people out there who are about the same age as Loon and I and who probably grew up with this particular author. Um, there's been a, a reasonably recent announcement by Netflix that they've, they've acquired Roald Dahl's IP. Now, IP stands for Intellectual Property. This means that a major streaming service now owns the characters, likenesses and work of a man who, let's be quite frankly honest, was a bigot, a racist, an anti-Semite, a womanizer, a bully, and also the greatest children's author of his generation. And actually several generations after that, he's still a bestseller. One of the reasons I'm starting with him is because it's an interesting case study with the, with the idea that someone else now owns someone else's work and can continue to generate, using the intellectual property, new works that were not actually created by the original author. And we're not going to get into the death of the author because we're way past the late 60s now and, and we should all know that stuff. You know, the idea of authorial intention is dead and it doesn't actually matter. It's like, yeah, great, you just you just try that. You, you try reading a book that an author hasn't written, okay? And I get, before anyone responds, that, well, it's not about that. It's not about the act of creation. It's about what the author meant, because that doesn't matter. It's actually what the audience brings. The audience brings meaning to a text. Yes, I know that. They bring meaning to a text, bringing their own cultural consensual currencies to it. And that's how they read themselves into the text and the text reads themselves back to them and that's why the author doesn't matter but someone still has to actually create the damn thing in the first place now i'm starting with Dahl because it's an interesting case study with netflix and also because the reality is that the very best children's literature is in fact always 
always the best and most representative literature of its age. I know you can't argue with that. I'm sure I'll get to it in a later episode. So, Roald Dahl. Firstly, this isn't going to be a discussion of whether or not you can separate the actions of an individual from their art or public works. Briefly on this subject, I grew up loving the music of John Martin. Ian McGeechee, as he was born, changed his name to the much more onomatopoeically satisfying John Martin. I literally cannot listen to him now without my stomach turning, because it's since come out that he was a domestically abusive, manipulative, violent, alcoholic bully. The music might be wondrous, but it's not worth the human cost that it took to make. Now, the pathetic fallacy that exists about art and artists and... As long as the product is good, it doesn't matter if the artist was a complete bastard or the person was a complete bastard as long as the outcomes of their life were good is a complex subject. Winston Churchill, let's be blunt, was a racist and imperialist. He was a spendthrift who couldn't keep a pound in his pocket without it burning a hole in it. He was a functioning alcoholic whose main interest in life from a very early age was himself. His rashness and gung-ho-ness cost tens of thousands of men their lives in the Dardanelles, and he also opened fire on workers in the UK during the general strike, despite the right to peaceful protest being a fundamental cornerstone of what we like to think of as British democracy. And people should remember that the next time they're going, oh, 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 they're sitting on the M25 again to protest against oil. Yes, they're allowed to. It's a peaceful protest. Anyway, Winnie. We think of Winnie fondly. He's been claimed by the Conservative Party as an icon of theirs, despite starting his political career as a Liberal, crossing the floor of the House several times, and actually being broadly a late Victorian beyond pensant paternalistic centrist. Because for all of his many faults, the reason why we like him, the reason why we still venerate him, because of all of his many faults, and they were very, very many, when everyone else in the incumbent British government and many in the country, and let's not forget the Daily Mail, were suing for peace and for us becoming a Nazi state in all but name, he stood up and said, we fight. And all of the years of political manoeuvring and failure and self-aggrandizement and it all came down to, to being able to actually manipulate the cabinet situation and get enough people alongside him saying that we fight for it to actually happen. The Second World War was and is the only just war in history because had Hitler won, real politic would have meant that humanity, at least in Europe and possibly around the world, would have faced an age of darkness the like of which we have not seen before. The idea that somehow if we if we had fallen, America would have risen to our rescue, America is thousands of miles away. They would have looked and went, okay, well he's got, you know, France, he's got he's got France, he's got Finland, he's got Czechoslovakia, he's got most of Poland, he's got a non-aggression deal with Stalin, which probably won't hold. He's also got Britain, which means he's got the British Empire we could launch an attack from several thousand miles away but actually he's several thousand miles away let's just make a deal with him that's the reality of it we all like to think that we would be heroes and unfortunately most of us wouldn't be when the crunch comes russia won the war eventually and america helped and we didn't although we still like to tell ourselves that we did um but that moment in 1939 when churchill went we're going to fight and we're going to keep fighting was vital to the long term outcome. Can you separate the person from the output in that regard? Well, he was a racist, an imperialist. He was he was a spendthrift. He he 
was a functioning alcoholic. His main interest in life was himself. He would probably be diagnosed as a clinical narcissist. But at the right moment in time, he did the right thing. Whether he did it for the right reasons or not is very, very hard to to say. But it turned out better than it would have done had he not taken those actions. Can we separate the person from the outcome? No, we probably can't. John Martin was a twat. It doesn't matter how wondrous May You Never Is as a song. He beat his wife and abandoned his children. He was an odious human being. Woody Allen. I mean, let's not get into the fact that Woody Allen is not actually as funny or as good as you remember him. The highbrow humour and cultural references are when you actually watch them what someone who has never experienced or understood highbrow ideas or culture would put into a movie to show you that they too know high culture. His work also, if you if you watch any of it in sequence, shows a huge reliance on elderly men being attracted to younger women, which is deeply concerning in the light of the allegations against him. Midnight in Paris is saved by Owen Wilson before the drugs, but the portrait of an academic is the sort of movie fiction portrayal of an academic written by someone who has literally never met one and has no idea what they actually do for a living. Vicky Cristina Barcelona is basically something that's watchable because Scarlett Johansson, Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem are incredibly watchable. They're not like paint drying, you know. They're pretty good looking people who are also outstanding actors and actresses but it's essentially soft porn with deeply problematic undercurrents about male toxic masculinity and mental health and if you watch his work you realize you're always watching the same film with the same characters and the same beats and the same riffs and the same concerns and this is something you'll find with a lot of authors and auteurs and creators and musicians a lot of them only have one note Metallica have one note. They've made a career out of being very, very good at playing it. Adele only has one song. You were amazing. I was a miserable bitch. I dumped you. You found somebody else. You've married them. You're really happy with them. And I'm just ringing to tell you that I really wish I hadn't dumped you because I'm really miserable without you. That's it. That's all of her songs. All of them. Ah... For a literary example, if you read Patrick O'Brien's or Aubrey Maturin series, um, you'll spot the tricks coming round again, especially if you read through it more than once. And that's not meant badly. It's easily the best novel cycle of the 20th century. It's almost infinitely better than A Dance to the Music of Time, which is stultifyingly bad. But when you first read Aubrey and Maturin and you're swept up in the Russian agglomeration of detail, you don't notice the tricks and the tropes repeating. You don't notice that he goes to a technical discussion of seamanship when Stephen is there because it fills up a few pages about, oh, well, Stephen doesn't know very much about the inner workings of, of a ship. This is a man who's a, supposed to be a, a, a spy and naturalist and one of the finest brains in Europe, and he still doesn't know what a taffrail is. Um, we have to believe that Jack is is one of the most talented um, sailors and navigators in the entire Royal Navy, that he is a mathematician and an astronomer of near genius who gives presentations on, on ocular uh, manifestations to the Royal Society, and yet he can't count his own money. We have to swallow the on-off, on-off, on-off again relationship of Stephen Diana, his opium addiction, Jack falling foul of authority constantly, that they've made their fortune again. Oh, they've lost it again. Oh, they've made their fortune. Oh, oh, they've lost it again. That's fine. Everyone has their riffs and tricks. Your favourite musicians do. Your favourite writers do. Your favourite artists do. Your your favourite politicians, if there is such a thing. And Matt Hancock, what an absolute 
cockwomble. I fell in love. Fuck off, you fucking twat hammer. Um, anyway, your favourite presenters, your favourite doctors, your favourite lawyers. Every life at some point becomes a variation on established themes unless you break the cycle and look for the new. To come back to whether you can separate the person from the art, it's not a question for today. I happily talk about the pathetic fallacy that pathetic fallacy that the artist can be damaged and damage other people as long as the art is great because it's bollocks. It's industry peddled standardized bollocks. And if you don't believe me, try this. The song The Way You Make Me Feel by Michael Jackson is a work of genius that will make you tap your feet. Michael Jackson is still a paedophile. You can't separate the output from the person once you know the human cost of the output. Coming back to the idea of narrative and the infinite story, Netflix's deal now means they have carte blanche to mine the Roald Dahl universe for content. And we're going to come back to the idea that if we have a universe, by which I mean a virtual world or creation that someone's made, we have the right to endlessly mine it. Um, let's focus on that idea. They have the right to explore the Roald Dahl universe. That means that more Roald Dahl is on its way. Roald will not have written any of it, of course. He's been dead for decades. But you can soon expect Danny, the champion of the world, part two. He's not a pheasant plucker. He's a pheasant plucker's son, and he's only plucking pheasants till the pheasant plucker comes. We can expect Willy Wonka's origin story. We can expect James and the Giant Peach in space. Every character, every story, everything you've ever loved about Roald Dahl will now be reworked and resold. Will it make his stories better? Will it add anything to the experience of reading The Magic Finger with your children for the first time? Or Matilda? Or The Witches? No, of course it won't. Have Netflix bought the rights because they want to add to the uniqueness of that world for future generations? No, Netflix have bought the rights because Roald Dahl is still a best-selling author and it's easier to pitch and sell a product where there's a pre-existing sales footprint. This is why publishers around the world continue to publish established authors even though they have diminishing sales even though their best work is well behind them rather than take a chance on a new author because the established author will still sell something even if the work is complete dog shit with Dahl his books still sell every year a new generation of children read his books so Netflix know they're on a winner they can buy up the IP rights because there's an audience there and then they can churn out Danny the pheasant plucker or whatever they're going to do because there's money to be made from a harassed mum or dad putting on the twits part two this time they're really clever on a rainy afternoon when everything else has been read and watched it's not a creative decision it's a financial decision now let's come back to the universe idea okay the universe that there is a dull universe there is a Tolkien universe there is a there is a George R. Martin Game of Thrones universe. There is a Pratchett Discworld universe. One of my best friends is a senior manager in a leading healthcare company. No names, no pack drill. Hello, Andy, how you doing? Every 18 months, that company gets an outside consultancy team to come in at great cost, and it retrains all of the management teams in project management and delivery methods. So my friend is now has learned the lean method and the sigma method and the six sigma lean method. And they're all basically the same thing with different worlds. The idea of a creative works having a universe is a similar thing. It's a currently detrop way of talking about the world a book or a film or a show or a piece of music conjures up. And it's absolute and utter bollocks. It's what I like to call complete arse candle. 
the universe is infinite. Creative works in any field are by definition finite. The company line from Netflix is there's so much to still explore in the Dahl universe. Well, the reply to that is if, if there was so much to explore, he would have explored it further because it was his creation. And the fact that he didn't means you should pretty much leave well alone. The company line is absolute bullshit because the universe is infinite and anything created by any human being is by definition finite. Even the worlds created by Tolkien or Pratchett or Dickens or anyone who's cited as an example of building an imaginative world that we inhabit and delight in from Winnie the Pooh to Peter Pan to the Water Babies to Alan Garner's Weird Stone of Brinza Garman or whatever they are so far from being a universe complete and whole that it's not even true why? because the universe literally contains everything and every possibility and books don't books are acts of choice the act of choice means that more is left out of a book than is ever put into it. There's also an aesthetic consideration for us as an audience. The deliciousness in any writer, any artist, any musician, any creative person at their very, very best is they leave us with just enough that we wish there was more, but there isn't. So we go back to the start and we read them all over again or we listen to them all over again or whatever the, everyone listening to this will have a story or a book or a piece of work that they finished and started again because they just they wanted to dive back into that world the wonderful thing about someone like the Beatles at their best is that they had the gift of being incredibly catchy after you'd listened to two and a half minutes of tickets to ride or she loves you you want to hear it again you only have to listen to the solo albums in the Liverpool Oratorio to realise what happens when you get too much of what you want. We now have people exploring the James Bond universe. Um, William Boyd writing Ian Fleming James Bond stories. We have Ian Colfer exploring the Douglas Adams universe. When Douglas Adams wrote a trilogy of five and it took him decades to do it because it was so difficult to actually realise the work that he had in his head with the with the what he was putting on the page. But the people, publishers and the people writing the Ian Fleming stories and exploring the Douglas Adams universe are doing it in the name of curation and the idea that they're somehow furthering the joy. But actually what they're doing is just milking the cash cow a little bit more because those those canons, those works, were created at very specific historical cultural times in very specific historical cultural contexts by, by people with singular visions and singular ideas with working within those historical cultural contexts. And you can't recreate that. One author who actually realised that and had common sense, despite having Alzheimer's, was Terry Pratchett who destroyed all of his hard drives after his death for the very that very reason. Because how long do you think it would have been if he hadn't left Express Wishes before his publishers went, oh, well, there's, there's a market there. We'll get, we'll get Tom Holt in to write, you know, another Rintwin story, or we'll get X in to write another Vime story because, because we're, we're, we're curating and respecting. No, you're not. You're milking the cash cow. Just fucking... Just just admit it. And here's why. Here's why it's important that you can't you can't recreate the lightning in a bottle of why things work. 
because, as we said, stories have a beginning, middle and end. Their delimited nature is exactly why they grab us. When they become endless and never ending, they lose narrative drive and they lose function and they lose our engagement and they become... Yeah. Because to endlessly colour in all of the unexplored parts of the map is to remove all of the wonder and joy that the limited amount of detail we have in front of us give us. It's the uncoloured areas on the map that give our own imaginations fuel to fire and breathe and imagine and conjure on our own and that is the magic of any piece of work. Not what we actually read but what it does to us internally, imaginatively and intellectually. When all of the eyes are crossed and all of the T's are dotted, there is literally nothing left to say. We don't have to use our imagination because we're told everything. Let's get specific with this idea and let's talk turkey. Or, as I like to say, let's talk Tolkien. Let's skip merrily, like Tom motherfucking Bombadil, to Tolkien. Now, I'm ashamed to admit that I have a certain expertise in J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm damned ashamed to admit it, but there it is. I used him as a specimen in a specimen author in my PhD to explore how the late imperial period in Britain constructed the ideas of England and Englishness that were still force-fed on a daily basis by our political discourse, even though they were lies and misrepresentations 150 years ago. I'm talking about the idea of the green and pleasant land, about um, all England is a field, about this fortress made by nature for herself, or this sceptered isle, this place of kings, all of that stuff. It was a nonsense when it was quite deliberately created in the late Victorian and early Edwardian period, and it's, it's a complete and utter nonsense now. Anyway, in The Lord of the Rings, Bilbo Baggins, short, lousy 2K score, put him at bow, he's got good hands, says, don't adventures ever have an end? And the reality is that it, this is a, it's really important, both in the book and in the context of what we're talking about, is yes, they do. Because the point that's being made is that his adventure and his time and his story is now over. It's Frodo's turn. Tolkien's masterpiece, and it is a masterpiece of 20th century fiction, for all it's about elves and dwarfs, works precisely and only for the reasons I've outlined above. It has a story. It has a beginning, middle and end. It actually starts at the end. This is the history of the War of the Ring. It has, a, and then it goes back to the middle and works forward from there. It has a MacGuffin. It has a hero. And that hero, in case you're wondering, is Sam Ganji. Because Frodo is the sort of whining middle-class shit who goes, well, I should be in the boat. I should be in the boat. My technique is wonderful. I know my 2K score is terrible. But, uh, but, 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 but. He, honestly, if you ever read it or watch the film again, I mean, God damn it, why Sam just didn't pick up a rock on the stairs of Cyril Connolly and smack him across the back of the head, I've got literally no idea. <gasps> oh, Sam. Oh, Sam. I do not know if I can go on, Sam. It is so hard being a ring bearer. The ring is so hard to carry. Oh, Mr. Frodo, sir. Oh, I'm carrying two packs and a pony all the way from the Shire to Mordor, and you're complaining about a piece of fucking jewellery. Man up. Anyway, Sam was the hero. It has a baddie. Sauron, Saruman, uh, Boromir, Sean Bean doing his very best. You do not walk into a Mordor accent. It has a cast of supporting characters. Tom motherfucking Bombadil in the house. It has jeopardy, it has conflict, and it has resolution. And it also has 
narrative drive because it has all of those features. It has a beginning which presupposes an ending and it works through to that ending and that resolution. The Lord of the Rings is essentially the Hobbit with more eagles and a volcano and a thousand more pages. Why then does it work knowing, because we're clever, and if you listen to Broken Horse Podcast, you're in a select group of very, very clever people, that The Hobbit is an episodic children's story. Then they did this, then this happened, and because this happened, then they did that, but then that happened, so they had to do this. But when that happened, they did the next thing. That's all it is, and it's the same in The Lord of the Rings. It works in The Lord of the Rings because The Lord of the Rings gestures towards a wider history, towards bigger landscapes, towards distant events and people whose actions over time have brought Middle Earth to the point of peril, the point of peril being where the story begins. It's even framed as a faux history in the same way that uh, Northanger Abbey or um, the Victorian novel or, or uh, Robinson Crusoe was, was framed as a faux history. Sire, an hitherto undiscovered manuscript has come to my attention. The, the, the invention of the archive tradition, the Shire Reckoning, the Red Book of Westmart, Gandalf going all academic in the, in the archives, Aragorn spouting poetry while the ringwraiths are stalking his charges on Weathertop. These are all common literary devices. The Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally meta-construction, if you want to get technical about it. It's a late Victorian romance novel. Fundamentally, that's postmodern before that was a thing because of the way it's constructed. You know, um, essentially, I believe that George MacDonald Fraser invented meta and postmodern fiction when he created the Flashman series, which is outside of uh, Patrick O'Brien, the the best historical novel sequence of the twentieth century. Although I Claudius was also pretty good, and it's it's infinitely more readable personally to me than Hillary. Look, I've done lots of research, Mantle, and I've read them. I, I've I've read Wolf Hall and The Mirror and the Light, and The Mirror and the Light was a wonderful act of ventriloquism. But um, MacDonald Fraser invented postmodern fiction by creating Flashman. Flashman, as you will know, is the fictional school bully in Tom Brown's school days. MacDonald Fraser's genius was to pretend that he was real and place him at the heart of key events in the formation and maintenance of the British Empire. And one of the best things he did was not make him a dick-daring type hero but make him a, an absolute craven poltroon a womanizing coward who basically gets all of his laurels and, and all of his celebrated achievements um, while cowering running away looking the other way and desperately trying to get out of doing anything involving anything it really undercuts the myths of Britishness and the British Empire predates Woody Allen and Zelig and fiction and the idea of fictionalized memoirs of real life events works of genius anyway why was the Lord of the Rings written? Was Tolkien smitten by the eternal fire that he really needed to write another story about short asses? No. It was written because his publisher said, The Hobbit has sold out. People will buy this shit. Can we have another version? Can we have another story like The Hobbit? And the reality was Tolkien wasn't that interested. He had an idea before the First World War about writing a mythology for England. That's the famous phrase that's associated with him. In his opinion... England didn't have a native mythology like some of the Nordic countries that were the areas of his academic expertise and interest. He was thinking of writing something like the Kalevala, which Finland created after Russia invaded it, to try and, and gesture towards a national history and a national mythology that was in danger of being overwritten. What Tolkien failed to realise, uh, because of his, his position in history and culture, was that, that we already had a mythology of England and a mythology of Britain. 
he his idea was that the Norman Conquest had overwritten a true Anglo-Saxon past. Um, and this next point will upset all of the gammons and little Englanders out there, but the reality is there is no true English past. The Norman Conquest was just as much a part of, of, of England's history and story and mythology as the Anglo-Saxon arrivals or the, or the, or the Danish arrivals were. Um, now, Tolkien wasn't a gammon. He was a philologist back when being a philologist was a culturally important thing to be. And he was English as well, back when the idea of the nation-state was still a big thing. He didn't understand that uh, the Norman Conquest was just one of the many tides of immigration and emigration that has defined our country. Really, before anyone out there listening to this gets their knickers in a twist, everyone on this small lump of rock in the mid-Atlantic came from somewhere else originally. Grow up. The ancient Britons, they walked across the land bridge back when Doggerland was still a thing. The Romans arrived and then left, and then the Danes arrived, and some of them stayed and some of them left. Then the Angles arrived and stayed, and then the Saxons arrived, and then they wrote Beowulf, and then the, there were some Jutes, and then Arthur burnt some cakes, which frankly is unforgivable if you're a rower. William arrived and wrote his doomsday book and started taxing things and inverted everything so that the king was at the top and held all of the land and everything else was held in held in in his name and with his permission. Geoffrey of Monmouth reinvented the the idea of British history by saying that Brutus had been here once, which is absolute and utterly utter nonsense. The Venerable Bede, you know, interpolated Christianity into the history of the island. And then there was there was the romance tradition, and then there was Thomas Malory writing the Mort to Arthur. Thomas Malory, who was who was a convicted murderer, rapist, and sheep thief, and I'm not sure which was worse in the 14th century. I think it might well have been the sheep thievery who actually wrote The Mort to Arthur, which is a French romance tradition genre, while he was awaiting trial for all of those things. Um, and then we have the, the didactic um, tradition. We, we, we have Pilgrim's Progress and we have Paradise Lost, which is, which is, if you want to know what Paradise Lost is like without ever reading it, take the largest hammer that you have in your toolbox get one of your children to just repeatedly batter you in the bollocks. It's literally like that, but with trockies. Um, these are, anyway, these are all our island stories. We weren't separated from something wonderful in the Anglo-Saxons. These are all our island stories. It's all part of a big cultural gumbo that is rich and vigorous and contains many ingredients from all over the globe. But back when Tolkien was born and was alive, and remember his books are mid-20th century literature, but he was fundamentally, like Churchill, a late Victorian, the question of England raged just as violently as it does now. The nonsense myths of the green and pleasant land, of an unsullied, pure past, where blood and soil are mingled, always a dangerous, complete nonsense. The Isole myth and the idea of the Petria is Roman in origin. And yet, a thousand years later, it ends up being the centerpiece of Nazi eugenics and extermination camps, where the idea of pure race is spat loaded with hatred. There is only one race, the human race. Our good old Anglo-Saxon virtues that the Farages and the Gammons of this world keep banging on about came from Germany. No one on this island currently can trace their unmingled descent to the people who first swung down from the trees back when Doggerland still existed. So the Farages and Gammons of this world can just do one. Anyway, Tolkien's creative impulse was to fill in what he thought were blank spaces on the map, what might have happened, how we might have developed a linguistic and literary tradition, 
had the Norman conquest not imported one and overlain it on top of the existing Anglo-Saxon one. Why would he do this? Well, the first thing you need to know is that he was a philologist. And the thing that you need to know about philologists is that they are fucking insane. This is a profession that can pronounce definitively on the existence of a third language, unknown, with no traces in the record, based purely on the vowel sounds in two other related languages. It's called asterisks reality, and no, there is no obelix in the manifestation of this concept. Philology was a fundamentally creative work, and his passion, it was his passion, it was his work, and his expertise. Philologists, in their active creation, are looking at the links between the language a given culture uses, the literature it writes with that language, and what that literature and language then says representatively about that culture. And that was his plan, to use his linguistic expertise to create a Beowulf-type origin text that drew together language, linguistics, and representative culture in a mythological story. And mythology, let us remember, is a story that humans tell each other to explain how the world around them works. They often become religions and cultural identities. They can often contain information about things like the Younger Dryas episode, when the when the the comet wiped out um, existing civilizations eleven thousand years ago. But let us also not forget that they are fundamentally largely works of fiction. Never forget that. Tolkien's mythology started from this principle. It started with ideas about language and culture. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings came later. The actual mythology that he wanted to write is the thing that became the Silmarillion. How does this work in terms of telling the story and stories having beginning, middles and ends and it being really boring when they don't? Well, all writing is a balance between telling enough and telling too much that the story gets lost. It's an exercise in redundancy. How much do you need to keep moving the story along to get to its conclusion? How much, how much do you give that will make it lose its narrative drive How, what, what's the tipping point what's the balance Tolkien's ramblings his mythological ramblings help turn the Lord of the Rings which is a fundamentally episodic adventure like the Hobbit into something that felt larger it felt larger when he was asked for another story about Hobbits he, Tolkien gave Unwin his publisher the mythology that he'd been working on for 25 years but they'd read it and went, no, we, we, we want a story with a beginning, middle and end, like The Hobbit. We don't want someone talking about in the beginning was, was the word and the word, which is essentially the opening part. The opening part of the, of the Silmarillion is exactly the same as the opening part of the King James Bible. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the light. He was, he was referencing this. But what that mythology gave him what all those scribblings and all of those ideas about elves and what have you, it meant when he set the second story of the ring, the magical ring that Bilbo found in The Hobbit was just a magical ring like Aladdin's lamp. It, it wasn't attached to Sauron or Past Age or whatever, but by, by using the mythology, he could gesture towards the fact that these events were happening in the context of other events that had happened in the, in the past. Um, he could talk about the events of the distant past as if there was some continuity and with a little bit of rewriting and a few literary conceits he could talk about long gone kings and queens and warriors and their actions and link them to the story and places in the landscape he could drop in poetry and songs and, and talk about the history of places he could gesture back and place what was happening in a wider sweep 
all of this is part of something that's been happening for a long time and now we come to the point where it ends. Now we come to the point where we destroy the ring or we are destroyed. Isildur, Sauron, Saruman, Aragorn, Gollum, Smaug, Bilbo, all of the rest of it, the elves, the Middle Age, it all gave it depth, gave it depth and perspective and it tantalised us because it gives us glimpses of what lay beyond the main map of the story but it didn't colour in the whole map it left our imaginations to fill it in and it did so so successfully that it became the template for modern mythology um, in literature and movies from Star Wars to Harry Potter and the reality is that Tolkien could never repeat it the Cimmerillion and the Rings of Power um, have struggled so badly because they have none of the motive driving force that the Lord of the Rings has because there's no MacGuffin, there's no jeopardy, there's no we destroy the ring or we are destroyed. He's spelling everything out from day one. He's not gesturing towards a wider universal sweep. He's trying to encapsulate an entire universe and you, you can't do that. The extra work that he did on his mythology and his, and his philological work gave him things he could use to give a sense of depth and perspective to the story but once you actually get into them themselves they become very bland and often the reality is that great artists continue to make art past the point where they've reached their zenith because the thing that makes them great is that they can't give up something that is uniquely theirs they can't give up the thing they've curated and brought to life and now it's brought to life and it's out in the world and people have engaged with it they can't let it go Star Wars was amazing. Star Wars, amazing, right up till the end of Return of the Jedi. Been crap since. Harry Potter, fantastic synthesis of the major tropes of children's literature. Boarding school story, orphan story, magical education story, good versus evil story. But the origin stories and the spin-offs, Fantastic Beasts, amazingly boring. Beadle the Bard, alliterative naming does not always work, Joe. The thing that creates great art, though, is obsession. And obsession doesn't necessarily know how to quit um, and here's the thing coming to the rings of power which is an infinite story like there's more in the universe to tell Peter Jackson's first adaptation of Tolkien was a triumph it was a great film made from an unfilmable book because he focused on the main element which was the beginning middle and end the story element and then he brought in the sweep and the detail and the gesture to the wider history and the wider world and by doing that with a lot of our artistry and a lot of Elan, he captured our imaginations. When he turned in The Hobbit, The Hobbit is at best a 90-minute heist movie. Get to the mountain, smash and grab the treasure, kill the dragon. But by spinning it out over three further um, sequels, giving it the same treatment as The Lord of the Rings, which was a, which was a much bigger work because of, because of what we've just talked about, it becomes flaccid, overblown and boring. Why? Because we're having it all spelled out for us. And having it all spelled out for us removes the magic. Having all the spaces on the map coloured in removes the wonder. It kills our own imagination. Amazon making the rings of power, it just doesn't work. Because the internal logic and consistency from the author isn't there. And because there isn't fundamentally a story. It's the story of how we got to the Lord of the Rings. But the Lord of the Rings worked because there was a motive that isn't in this. Who cares how Sauron became Sauron or Harfoots turned into hobbits or how Dumbledore became Dumbledore or whatever? Who cares? It's train spotting for people who write fan fiction. Go and write your own bloody story. 
The magic was and always is in the original artist struggling with their own obsessions and limitations to craft the one great masterpiece or statement that they have out of a lifetime of work. And that in itself is a central part of the issue. We got Lord of the Rings because his publisher took it off his desk after 18 years of waiting and said, this is going out now, I need any last edits within six weeks. And that is a true story. Otherwise, Tolkien would still be tinkering with it. Why? Because once you start a story, you can see all the other stories that you want to tell that you think will kind of help things. You want to cross all the I's and dot all the T's and, and the sense of scale is liberating because you can go anywhere, you can do whatever you want, but it's also constraining because if you suddenly decide to change something you know, near the start, then that changes that, but then if you change that, you have to change this and you've got to do it, you've got to work it all over again and then the story gets bigger and more characters come in and the finish line that you very clearly had in mind gets pushed further and further back while you just colour this bit in and just add that bit. It's why George R. Martin can't finish Game of Thrones. It's got too big for him. It's more than any one man can do in a lifetime. It takes massive, immense discipline not to start a work or piece of music. It takes massive, immense discipline to actually finish it, let it go and move on to the next idea. It really does. Tolkien couldn't do it. George Martin can't do it. None of the authors that you, you, you like probably can. The thing is not the ideas. It's never the ideas. Everyone has an idea. Everyone has a book in them. You know, everyone has a song in them. Everyone has a book in them. The thing is, having the idea, that's great. But then you've got to have the skills and the chops to realise it. Okay, that's two. But then you've got to have the actual bloody-minded stamina to keep going, to keep working when the thrill of the initial idea is gone but the finish line is not yet in sight. That takes guts, that takes training and belief, that takes actually like being a rower, it takes the discipline of the practice of the craft. Because when the bang and the crash of the start is gone and the finish line is still 3k away, what, go what keeps you going is not, is not your belief in the spirituality of rowing and its meditative effects and how good it is for your body. What keeps you going then is your training and your stamina and your mental and your mental strength and writing music research becoming a lawyer becoming a policeman becoming a doctor becoming a whatever is exactly the same i have a phd it took me two years i did it in two years while looking after three children and things at home that i'm not going to talk about here three small children under the age of five did i get it because i was clever no, of course I'm not clever. You listen to Broken Oars podcast. You know that I'm thicker than pig shit mixed with black molasses. I got it because I was bloody minded. It was an act of stamina and skill, not brains. And every work of art that has ever been lauded as a divine work of genius that says something about the human condition and, and must see at Glyndebourne this year has been made exactly the same way. If you're lucky and you do the work, you will get a flash of grace. But the rest of the time is mileage making medals. Always, 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 always. Which brings us back to living in the age of the infinite story. We live in the age of the infinite story. The rings of power. We will milk the Tolkien universe. We have bought Roald Dahl's IP. We are now going to create more Roald Dahl works. They're not Roald Dahl's works. You can see it in the MCDC Superverse universe. Does anyone now think that the Spider, Thor, Iron, Doctor Strange, Hulk, Avenger, spin-off after spin-off after spin-off after spin-off will ever end. 
we've had Tommy Maguire as Spider-Man, then uh, Andrew Garfield, then Tom Holland. That's nine move. That's nine Spider-Man movies. Three of which deal with the same origin story, all of which deal with the same love issue story. Now, that's not including his Avengers outings. How many Batmans have there been now since Jack Nicholson first ate the screen in the 80s? <gasps> but it's a fantastic character with Batman. We explore the deeper issues of the human psyche. No, we don't. It's about a billionaire narcissist who beats people up to make himself feel better. Oh, Jack Nicholson, Michael Kilmer, Val, Val, Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer and whoever was opposite him, George Clooney and whoever was opposite him, Will Arnett as Lego Batman, Batman who is at least funny and self-aware. Oh look, here's Robert Pattinson as Batman again with another origin story. Here's Ben Affleck playing him in the Justice League as the the Dark Knight Returns graphic novel iteration of Batman, all drunk and fat. Fantastic. That's wonderful. This is not effing Hamlet. This is about a billionaire who beats people up to make himself feel better about the fact that his parents were killed, he did nothing about it, and he feels guilty about it. We're not getting Olivier's Hamlet versus Gielgud's Hamlet. We're not getting Gielgud's Hamlet versus Tennant's Hamlet. And anyway, what's the deal with Hamlet anyway? A procrastinating narcissist monologuing about procrastination. Wow, great. The only reason that we watch it is because the heritage Shakespeare industry has made such a thing of it. If it's so important to see how different actors play different character, the same character, why don't we get you know great actors doing their Pete Beale on EastEnders? It's damn sight more pertinent to the way that we live our lives and consume our content. You glorify the past, the future dries up. And we are British. The manipulation of us by a political system relies on us telling us that we were once great, that our past was glorious, and it wasn't. The good old days weren't that great. Read any history book. I had grandparents who remembered the hungry 20s and 30s. It wasn't glorious. Jesus, life expectancy in the good old days of a ho only 100 years ago was 42, and it still is that in some parts of Glasgow. We're a weird country, Britain. We, we, we look to the past. We look to the past as if, the, as if there's some kind of divine revelation in the ruins and the embers. And as we look to the past, the present slips by into the future and becomes the past and still we look back to the past. Anyway, the point is that the MC Superverse approach churns out content without end because it's, that's what's needed now. We release this podcast usually once a fortnight. Sometimes um, it's been more than that. Occasionally it's been less when we've been busy with other things. But it's all of, oh, you, you, you have to keep putting it out because that's how you build in an audience. Well, actually, we could write one great book and that might be enough. But actually what needs us to put out content regularly is Podbean and YouTube and Instagram because without people constantly posting content on their platform they have no platform the people who build and own these platforms like to think that their platform is is the thing is the is the selling point but it's actually the content that's on it if, if everyone stopped making youtube videos youtube wouldn't exist if everyone stopped putting things on instagram instagram wouldn't exist it's the content that's important but if you constantly churn content out just because you always publish something on a wednesday are you actually saying anything worth saying or are you just churning out content because you always publish something on a Wednesday? That's the reality of it. And the MC Superverse Infinite Story primetime streaming Amazon Netflix model churns out content without end because 
it needs to constantly put product on its platforms. And it's easier to sell a product that's already been sold before and has an audience, even if it's to a diminishing audience, than it is to sell a new product. And this is even more true in the creative industries. It's why publishers will continue to publish an established author with diminishing sales whose best work is long behind them, rather than take a chance on a new author with a new project. Why? Because it's a high-risk industry that's struggling to make ends meet as it is, and most of its outputs don't make their money back, and some crumbs from the table are better than none. Now, in a literary sense, this is creatively difficult. The reality now is that the very first book that you come out with will be the book that you have to come out with forevermore or until your agent can no longer place it. Um, someone like a Kipling could write a story for children and then he could write poetry for adults or a, or a play to go in the West End or a series of poems for children or a collection of short stories about soldiers or the first hybrid novel in Kim or his variation on the boarding school novel in Storky and Co or a, a regimental history and then shift back to something like the Jungle Book and people just went oh he's a he's a writer he's writing about stuff but now if you come out with a murder mystery that's what you'll write until your career is over if you come out with a, a non-fiction nature writing book that's what you'll have to write ditto sci-fi children's lit books historical fiction and all of these things, as I am learning very rapidly, have to fit within very specific marketing templates. It's why in historical fiction, the exciting incident always happens on or around page seven. It's why in nature writing, all the books have the same woodcut colored cover and the same themes. I went into nature and learned something important that we could all learn from, and here's my book about it. Some authors lean into it. Um, Lee Child has written the same Jack Reacher novel 26 times. They're all different, but they're all exactly the same. Bernard Cornwell has written the same historical novel a million times from Sharp onwards. More power to him. Publishers love him. People still read him. That's why he still gets published. Personally, I gave up when Uhtred still hadn't reached Bambra after the fourth book. Even in the 8th century, Bambra, it's the big fucking castle on the hill just up from Newcastle. And Uhtred, you must be the oldest active Viking in history. They had an average lifespan of 24, yet Uhtred is still killing people in single combat in his 60s? Come on, man. They had glucosamine sulfate back then? He was on vitamins back then? I also got bored with reading them because everything happens in the same order every single time. Something happens on page 7, there's a betrayal or a double cross or a stranger arrives in the village with a sword and then something else happens in chapter 3 where there's another betrayal or a double cross or a fight and then Uhtra will give an oath in chapter 5 even though it means he can't go back to Bamber again and so on. Genre fiction is genre fiction for a reason. But the very best of it makes us forget that we are reading a series of mechanisms and moves. Oh, yes, but, but look at Pratchett, I hear you say. Look at, look at Tez. Look at Tez Pratchett. Sorry, Terry. And also Tez Chipchase. Pratchett wrote a million books about the Discworld. He created an entire universe, and he was still, he was still writing. Uh, as he died, he was still trying to fill it. And, and, and. Pratchett didn't create a universe for the same reasons that Tolkien didn't create a universe. See above. For the same reason that Patrick O'Brien didn't create a universe. What he did was create a mechanism by which he could explore different genre fictions under the same umbrella. So the colour of magic, the light fantastic, the early books are your basic sci-fi fantasy, end of the world ideas um, mixed with Douglas Adams and P.G. Wodehouse style humours and some satire on the genre of 
fantasy, guards, guards, men at arms, feet of clay, anything with vimes and carrot in it are murder mystery fiction um, with elements of noir. Vimes is the alcoholic, the, the, the alcoholic who pulls himself together to do the right thing even though he's an alcoholic and eventually pulls himself out of that. Carrot is the naive young man who only does the right thing, in the, who comes to the big city. Usually the naive young man in murder mystery in the big city ends badly, but Carrot's righteousness kind of sells through. These are murder mystery um, suspense fiction. Unseen Academicals is fundamentally a sports book. Witches Abroad is a meta work on the nature of story. Reaper Man, which I know is Lewin's favourite, is a didactic novel on the nature of life and so on. He's writing genre fiction in every instance. What gives it the gloss of continuity is because it all nominally happens on the Discworld. This makes it seem connected. It makes it seem organically connected as though the 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 genre, the, the, the canon as a whole is reflecting that world or that universe. But Granny Weatherwax rarely crashes into the world of Vimes and Vimes rarely crashes into the world of Rincewind and Two-Flyer and the wizards might go to the Patrician or the Watch to the wizards but it happens within the context of the genre fiction that they're working in at the time. And if you reread Pratchett, even when he's still recognisably Pratchett, he's always doing a genre fiction book that follows the rules of genre fiction every single time. We can read the Discworld again and again. And let's be honest, by the time he got to going postal, making money in Steam, he was racing to bring the Discworld into the contemporary moment. And they're not as good for me personally, really. We can read it again and again, though, because we feel like we're dropping in each time into a particular section and sector of a world that we know. But each discrete story within that starts, middles and ends each time. It always has an end. The reason why the Marvel Comics DC Universe receipts are falling off is because the stories don't end. We've now got to the stage where it's the end of credits reveal, it's the, it's the, it's the Easter egg that gestures towards the next instalment, but there's never actually any resolution. And to be blunt, the satisfaction in life comes from enjoying both the journey and the destination. Endless journey with no destination? Boring. Destination without appreciating the journey? Fundamentally unsatisfying. Stories that don't end but tell you to come back next summer? They're having you on, man. Are we learning anything new in the constant sequels? No, we're not. Why are they being made? Because there's, they are cash cows. But when there's no end in, in sight, it stops being a story and we stop being interested. Stories end. We close the book and we wish that there was more. Netflix buying Roald Dahl up means there will be more Dahl, but it will not be Roald Dahl. It will be some creative team in a writing room spitballing. And if you watch The Rings of Power, you will realise why that doesn't fundamentally work. Because however much they try and remain true to Dahl's vision and his creativity, a lot of what he did was did on impulse and instinct and writing within his cultural historical moment. And you can't actually recreate that because they, they won't be writing from his cultural moment and his lifetime of experiences and sensations and impulses and peccadillo. It's why the rings of power and the house of the dragon and this stuff doesn't work. Tolkien was weird, okay? So Roman Catholic working in a university that didn't accept Roman Catholics until just before he joined. He was working in a field that was very highly regarded at the time, but it was still recognized as being full of complete and utter whack jobs while it was still widely imported important he was linguistically obsessed he was obsessed by literature 
in a very old sense as a representation of represent representative culture but because of his obsession and because of his weirdness and because of his cultural historical moment his linguistic choices and his literary choices meant that his work had internal logic and consistency we might not like it but we are rarely jarred by incongruity in his work when someone starts speaking in the language of high saga in the lord of the rings it sounds like the language of high saga because the person who wrote it literally wrote the book on the language of high saga down to the phonemic number of beats that you get per line when some staffer at Amazon apes Tolkien, you get a monkey with a typewriter doing their version of Hamlet's blank verse, which means the dialogue doesn't ring true, and as soon as the dialogue doesn't ring true and you're jolted out of the world you're supposed to be immersing yourself in, you're in trouble. The bottom line is, rather than endlessly explore universes, you have to create your own characters, you have to write your own stories, you have to push for what is unique and special to you, because the things that stick in our culture are all of those things. You have to sweat and rework and grind it out and meet the inspiration with perspiration and make choices and rethink them and redo them and go back to the first draft and work it again and make it as good as you can possibly make it and then have your editor, hello Melanie, rip it apart all over again and whether the culture recognises it or not, whether you become a bestseller or not whether or not you actually get the book to the starting gate and get it out into the world it doesn't matter because if you write from that perspective you will end up with something that is recognizably and uniquely yours if you write for the predetermined audience to the rules to the beat to explore the universe to color in all of the spaces on someone else's map it will look and sound like it you have to learn the rules and forget about them. You have to do the mileage and training. So when you get to the start line, you are focusing on your performance rather than your catch profile. The spin-offs, the extensions of the universe, the milking of the cash cow till a teacher dry and sore, nothing else is coming out, don't. They mean nothing beyond the financial department calculating that they'll get enough streams and eyeballs. And if they do that, the fractions will add up to them getting their bonuses this year. And while someone is pretending to be Roald Dahl to make money, this generation's Roald Dahl is not getting published because the publishers and the people who guard the gates don't need one. They've got a facsimile of it from Netflix. Now, as I said, I'm working on some things. I've got a book that I wrote with my children, which will be coming out. My daughter wrote it when she was three, and we told her every night when we were together and it's become a whole network of interlinking stories about her life and our lives and our family lives from that time but there will never be any more than three magic blanket stories published if we are lucky and we get the chance to do the next one after this because because the magic of stories is that they have an end and that they leave us wanting more and if it does actually make it to the starting gate and go out into the world i don't expect it to make us all millionaires but if it does the rights to everything are in my daughter's names. Now, this has been the first episode of Broken Oars University, and it's been on the infinite story and narrative, and you're probably thinking, good God, I wish there was some rowing about to happen now. <laughs>